0: Well, welcome to our final week in this idol series. We're so glad that you are able to tune in uh, either live or online. And if you are joining us online or you're sitting here today, you can always go back to our sermon series in the past and uh, you can go to lakeformonline.com and go to watch. And uh, you'll be able to find all those sermons. We are we're also on uh, your uh, favorite podcast, so you can actually uh, uh, go to uh, go to that your your podcast player and uh, be able to find us and just search for Lake Point Church, and we are there. As we close out this series on idols, I'm reminded uh, every week that idols are something that can sink into our lives. You know. In the past, as we read in God's word, there's lots of idols that we run across, and they're obvious. They're they're structures that people build, and they're structures that that people bow down to, and, and pray to, and have devotion to. Today, you don't really necessarily have uh, those idols out in plain view, but you do have idols in our society that Satan has done an amazing job to infiltrate into our culture, into our life in a very sneaky way. The same sort of way he talked to Eve and Adam in the garden, he's talking to us now. And we, uh, we see sort of the, the end game of a life of idolatry in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah shows us what can happen because uh, it's sort of the last scene of the movie called the Old Testament. We have the destruction of of Jerusalem. We have the temple torn down. We have the walls in disrepair. And so Nehemiah is called to, uh, to help repair those. And we are able to learn a lot from Nehemiah as he's walking in sort of the end game of idolatry. I believe that we are in the end game of a life of idolatry in this culture, in our world. And, and, and I don't know about you, it just feels like there's, you feel like that we're surrounded, and it's just coming in closer and closer. And so as this is coming in, it's so easy to, uh, to live a life of fear and to uh, not really do anything, just in a life of apathy, well, we don't need to do that. We need to be the Nehemiah. The church needs to be the Nehemiah. This is one reason and the main reason why as a church we are walking through this study to show us what we can do. Idolatry is very serious. And you can't understand the seriousness of idolatry without first understanding the love that God has for you. God's love is crazy. It could seem reckless sometimes. God's love is amazing, and it's full of jealousy. Why? Because he doesn't want anything to capture your heart and steal your way. He loves you so incredibly much. And so that seriousness, when you really fully understand the love of God has for you, and you're overwhelmed by his love, then you can understand the seriousness that idolatry has in our life. We visited a a, a temple. We call it the Temple of Pleasure. The temple of pleasure holds some of these first idols we talked about. The temple of pleasure uh, has, um, has things like food and, and, and sexual pleasure and entertainment and those kinds of things. But one thing you've got to understand is God created those things. In fact, God gave us those things to enjoy. But we have taken those things and warped them, that our culture has, and, and the, the evil and the dark in this world has taken those things and has warped them into something very different than what God has planned. And so God longs for us to enjoy those things, yes, but not more than himself, for us to enjoy him. We get to the point to where idolatry is really enjoying the gift more Than the giver. When we, when you and I enjoy the gift of those things of pleasure more than the giver, then idolatry has seeped into our life and into our heart. Last week we visited the temple of power, and in this temple of power you have idols such as success, money, and achievement. And yes, those things are, are, are good. And yes, God wants us to live successful lives, but not in the eyes of the world. He wants us to live a life of success and to be able to save money, do things with their money, to glorify him and to achieve things for the kingdom. But sometimes those three idols are things that can get in the way of God. We, we look to them We look for success, money, and achievement to do for us what God really wants to do, okay? So God really wants to do some incredible things in our life, and we look to those things rather than look to God. It's so easy. So this week, we're going to another temple, a third temple. And this temple, the last temple we're we're visiting in this series, is called the Temple of Love. So the Temple of Love has some nice, modern jazz music kind of thumping in the background. It's got dim lights. It's got mirrors on the ceiling. It's got hearts on the walls. It's Temple of Love. And so we're going to visit three idols in this Temple of Love. And so I hope that you hang with me, track with me as we walk through this the first idol we're talking about is the idol of romance the idol of romance we love romance we love romantic comedies right we love anything with kind of a, a romance we're, we're we're looking for romance we are a culture that is looking for someone to spend our life with and someone that is that one person and some people are just, we can get so focused on trying to find that one person, trying to find that romance. And so, we get so locked in on that, that we feel like we're incomplete without that person to be uh, live a life of romance. We feel like there's somebody else there to make us complete. Oh, I'm so... I'm so empty without this person. Or you make me complete. If we're looking for other people to make us complete rather than God himself, then we have some idolatry in our life. Let me ask you a question. Would you do anything for love? Would you do anything for love? Students, here today, would you anything, would you do anything for someone to love you romantically? Singles here today, would you do anything to find that romantic love? If you answer yes to that, even online, if you answer yes to that, then there are some idolatry issues because you're so focused on trying to find that romantic love that you're missing out. On the main missing piece of your life, We're we see this in, in a story found in Genesis chapter chapter twenty nine, and you can turn to your copy of God's Word. We're gonna read several verses there, and if you're online, we have these scriptures. But in, in Genesis chapter twenty nine, we see the story of Jacob falling in love with Rachel. So Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. We, we know who Father Abraham is, and basically the, the guy that, that God revealed himself to and, and showed his love to and said, look, I'm going to build a great nation through you. And so Jacob was a grandson of Abraham, and, and so he went to a distant land to so we're family, where Abraham came from, and, and, and there was this guy, a relative named Laban. And so when Jacob went to Laban's house, his eye caught Rachel. And man, it was love at first sight. He's like, yes, she's the one for me. And he told Laban, he's like, all right, I, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. Rachel. I love your daughter. Man, she's she's good looking. She's got everything I need. She completes me. And so Laban and, and Jacob make an agreement. They that he would work for seven years in order to marry Rachel. And you know, I know how that feels. I mean, I, I've never really really worked for my father-in-law in order to get. She's on to marry me, but baby, I'd, I'd work 50 years for your dad. You know, we're, you know, in order to get you know you to be my wife. And but you have this this setting of Jacob working for seven years for the hand of Rachel. And as we look at this, we're going to see, and I'm going to be in Genesis 29, verse starting at verse 19. As we look at this story of Jacob and Rachel, we're going to see another person come into play into this story. So Genesis 29, verse 19. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. All right, good. They're tracking. They're on the same page. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But then evening, when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, whoa, who's this? Leah, and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her he had to have been drunk I'm just saying and Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her her attendant when morning came there was Leah exclamation point (laughs) there was Leah whoa so Jacob said to Laban what is this you have done to me I served you for Rachel didn't I why have you deceived me now that is wrong right That is just plain wrong. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. I mean, I really think that that Leah probably maybe had some issues, you know, and maybe it it was difficult for her to get married. It's like, you know what, I'm just going to sneak her in here. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the youngest, youngest one also in return for another seven years of work. <laughs> Talking about a piece of work. And Jacob did so. He finished a week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So he gave it to her immediately after that week, and then worked another seven years. Laban gave his servant uh, Bilhah to his daughter Rachel. As her attendant, Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, obviously. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Um, You know, it's so easy to focus on this this story, this love story, this romantic love story between Jacob and Rachel. But I don't want to focus on them. I want to focus on Leah. Poor Leah. She's in a situation where she's not loved. She's kind of forced to to marry Jacob, really tricked to marry Jacob. And so Rachel lived a life of of, of disappointment. She was disappointed in, in her situation. She was not loved. And how do we know that she was disappointed. Well, we see in the names of her children. As we continue in this chapter, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. So that's, that's basically the, the name, the meaning there with Reuben it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Verse 33, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a, a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, oh, woe is me, I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. <laughs> so she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, "Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him 3 sons, so he was named Levi." So she thought, "Surely I've borne my husband 3 sons, surely he's going to love me now." But that wasn't the case. And so Leah is in a situation, Leah is in a situation where she is miserable, but the reason why she's miserable is Leah is focused on the wrong thing. She has been focused this whole time on seeking romantic love from her husband. Instead of focusing on her love for God, her creator, her father, God. When we look to someone other than God To complete us and define our lives, we have entered into idolatry. For years, Leah put her hope in this romantic love. She continues to feel the pain and rejection and loneliness with every child that is born. But then something happens in verse 35. Something happens in verse 35. It says this. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Something changed in Leah's heart. She basically took her husband, Jacob, took him off the throne of her heart, trying to win his romantic love for her. She took him off and replaced him with God. This time, this time, this child, forget about Jacob. I'm going to praise the Lord. What a powerful statement that is. You know, I'm not going to focus on the romantic love. I'm going to focus on God filling that peace. It is a God-shaped void, not a mate-shaped void that is in our hearts. It's all about that God-shaped void that only he can fill. And what's interesting, that's interesting, and God's going to bless this. God's going to bless this revelation of Leah. Because she literally moved a man off of her, the, the, the throne of her heart, and she replaced it with God Almighty. And, and God blessed that. And the reason we know that is because when you look at the book of Matthew, you ever, have you ever read the first chapter of Matthew? The first chapter of Matthew, and I'm going to be honest most of that chapter, I just gotta kind of skip over because it's full of names that I can't pronounce. And, and so, I mean, I've read all of them before, you know, but I, I can't tell you, you know, half of those people. But what it does, it gives you a genealogy of Jesus where G, basically how, you know, how Jesus w- w- was traced into, uh, into mankind and, and how he was... was um, from the, from the Israelites and Abraham. But it, it's really, really interesting that when you look at this genealogy of Jesus, when you come to this sort of area of, of Jacob, it literally says this. Jacob was the father of Judah. Jacob was the father of Judah. Judah was this fourth son that Leah bore. Now, Jacob had more favorite sons. Joseph. Remember the coat of many colors? Yeah, that, that's, that's Jacob and Joseph. He, he had a favorite son. Why? Because. He was born of Rachel. Benjamin, the youngest, he was also favored. Why? Because he was Rachel's son. She bore him. But the Bible, so God acknowledged it and blessed it so much, he left out those favorites. And he's like, no, we're going to put Judah there. We're going to put Judah there. This time, I will praise the Lord. It's easy to be so focused on finding someone that you're not focused enough on becoming the person God wants you to be. If you're so tunnel visioned on just, I've got to find that person, I've got to find that person, and then it could be almost a a lifestyle of idolatry, and and your that hunt for that person is, is taking the place of your devotion to God. Can I tell you something? Love Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus. God's going to take care of that other stuff. He will. You're going to be walking along. You're going to be doing life together. You're going to look to your right or to your left. You're going to say, you know what? This guy or or this girl's been tracking with me. And they love Jesus. Hey, we have something in common. Before you know it, God's going to put you together. God's going to put you together. And so just put Jesus on the throne of your heart. Singles, put Jesus on the throne of your heart. Students, don't, don't try to look or get the attention of others with your Instagram posts in order to try to get that so those romantic feelings or people would like you or love you or whatever you call it now. You, don't let that be your focus. Love Jesus. He's going to take care of the rest. He knows the best person for you and your life. I've seen it in my own life as well. Yeah, I've made mistakes in the past. as, as I've kind of put romance on the, on the throne of my heart instead of trusting in the Lord. But the Lord did get a hold of my heart. So... Fill your life with Jesus so that people of the opposite gender will be attracted to what's inside of you. And guess what? If they are not attracted to Jesus, you have full permission to cross them off your list. You do. So, in this temple of love, we have the idol of romance. Don't let the idol over. Don't bow down to this idol of romance in place of God. Yeah, God does want to bring romance into your life, absolutely, but He first wants you to love Him fully. The second idol we come to in this temple of love is the idol of family, the idol of family. We, we love our family. I know we've got some probably mother-in-law issues and that kind of stuff, but for the most part, we love our families. Whether they're our immediate families or our, our distant families and our weird cousins that we see once a decade, but we still should love them. And, and you probably have some red flags right now in, in your head just kind of popping up going, okay, why, why would family be an idol? Why would family be an idol? You know, the, great, the greatest commandment is, is basically about loving God first and loving others second. We should put God first, and we should put others second. That means also our family. I like to use this analogy. Um, have you ever put on a, a button-down shirt, and you got to the bottom, and they weren't matching up? <laughs> like, one side was longer than the other. Have you ever done that? I've done that more times than I would like to acknowledge and the reason why it's not right is, is when you start up here and you get the top button wrong. If you get the top wrong, the others will not line up. But if you get the top right, the others will line up. That's the same with God. God. God, you get God right. You, get, you make sure that God is first place in your life and in your heart. You get that, that first God button right, everything else is going to line up. You can love people. You can love your family better as you love God. I don't know how families love one another without loving Jesus first. There have been times we've gone to my own house they, Mom and dad, if you're watching, <laughs> we go to our own house, visit, and he's like, okay, Jesus, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do this, you know. Love our family. But there's some extended families like, really? You just said that. <laughs> but we gotta love our family through God, and I don't know how else we can do that with success. And so we should get the top button right and in place. And it's not that we are to love our our, our family any less than God. It's just a different love. It's just you love them differently than you show your love to God within the context of, of the love of your family and your love to God. We're gonna see an example of this, of putting God first, family second, in another story, same family, but another story found at Genesis 22. So if you get your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 22, it's a story of Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham and, and his wife Sarah, are probably familiar with the story, Abraham and his wife Sarah um, wanted children. In fact, God said, you're going to become the father of a mighty nation. Well, in order for Abraham to become a father of a mighty nation, it's really important for him to have children. That's kind of step number one. And so, the problem is that Sarah could not have kids. She, she tried many, many years. And then finally, I mean, they were, they were losing out hope and they were, you know, doing things you shouldn't have been doing to try to, you know, well, God's forgotten all about us. We're just going to do it ourselves, and that created other problems that we're still living with today, with the nations surrounding Israel. But God sent an angel to Abraham and Sarah and said, look, you're going to have a child this time next year. Of course, they laughed about it. They're like, yeah, right. Do you know how old I'm going to be <laughs> when, when, when that happens? There's no way, there's no way, but obviously when God wants something done, he's going to make a way and he's going to do it. And so Abraham and Sarah did have a son, she did conceive, and she did bear a son, and they named him Isaac. So imagine this son. They've been waiting for years and years and years. Imagine the incredible love that they have for Isaac. I mean, because of their age, because of the difficulty of her getting pregnant, they are watching Isaac very, very carefully. He's not even going out of the tent Abraham has other, you know, livestock and, and servants and, and people. And so he, he, he's, he's wealthy. But they're keeping Isaac close. He's the promised one. He's the one that's going to help carry on this promise by God to build a mighty, great nation. And so Isaac... Is their world. He is everything to them. Till God looks down and sees, hmm, Isaac is everything to them. They love him a lot. So I need to test Abraham. Of course, we know that God foreknew. He holds the past, present, and the future in his hands, he can see it all together. I mean, he, he knows. But he needed to test Abraham. He needed to see to Abraham. He needed to be able to see where Abraham's devotion was lying. So in Genesis chapter 22, we see this story of this test. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. We're in verse 1. He said to, uh, to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, that God said, take your son, your only son, it's important, whom you love, Isaac. And this is really interesting because that's the first time in, in the Bible the word love is used. Okay, not until chapter 22, first time the word love is used. And he's talking about the love between a father and a son. Of course, this is foreshadowing of what God's going to have to do. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he took himself and and carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Good question, Isaac. You're a smart one. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out in his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, probably shouting. Here I am, he replied, probably with tears streaming down his face. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. What an incredible, amazing story. Now, I do want to make something clear. God never demands human sacrifice. He doesn't. Pagan countries and religions they do. You see that in God's Word. God never demands it. And the reason why this is here is because, again, God knows the past, present, and future. He, he knew what was going to happen. He had to test Abraham. And we see in the book of Deuteronomy where, where God, God speaks about that, not to sacrifice children. But the problem is that the, the book of Deuteronomy wasn't written yet, and Abraham didn't know this was a test But yet, Abraham moved forward and proved his devotion to God. The, um, The story of this is so compelling and so beautiful. And yes, it's a little fearful. And But what it does is it allows God the Father to see what someone has to go through to be willing to sacrifice their one and only son, the promised one, on an altar. And so God saw that, why? Because he would later have to do that with his son, Jesus, the promised one, the one and only son. See, Abraham proved that this this son that you gave me, this family you gave me, does not sit on the throne above you, O God. And so I love you more than my son. And God showed with the sacrifice of Jesus that He loves us more than allowing His Son to not suffer. So we see how this coordinates with our life. Um, it, it, it makes me realize that the more we fear losing something, then the more likely we are to worship it. The more we fear losing something, the more that we're likely to worship it. Now, I, I'm not saying we don't need to look after our kids. I'm not saying we, we're not to pray for them. We, we have this this app on our phone, and we, man, we got our kids tracked, everything. Man, some of y'all may have that with your kids as well. You may have this app called Life 360, and we have some particular places around town that when they arrive or they leave uh, or whatever, we, we can tell where they're going. And that can get a little bit annoying, but what it does, I've used this as an opportunity for, to, to pray for my kids. When I get a notice that my kids are leaving Woodland High School, guess what I'm doing? I say a quick prayer. God, watch over them. Protect them. But guess what? God, they're in your hands. They belong to you. I'm just here to help raise them up to to the best of our ability and to introduce them to Jesus. That's my job, to love them and introduce them to Jesus. You take care of the rest. They belong to you. You want to take them? You take them. Will that be absolutely devastating and sad for for me and, and Suzanne? Yes, it would and we know people that have lost children yes it's devastating but they belong the hands of god why cuz they're not more important than god the father and let me tell you something my kids need to know that my children need to know that i love god the father more than i love my children My wife. Not that I don't love them. It's a different kind of love. It's a deeper love. It's a stronger love. I want them to see that. Can you love the gift in such a way that it makes you love the giver even more? We see Abraham make an A on the pretest. What's the pretest in this situation? The pretest was going up to the mountain. Before he went up to the mountain, what did he say to his servants? He said, we will worship and we will come back to you. In other words, we're going up there to worship. It's not about me. It's not about what what I'm gonna lay down. It's not about me losing my son. We are gonna go there to worship and I believe that we are coming down. Maybe uh, Abraham believed that God would save his son Isaac or that God would even raise him from the dead. Whatever Abraham believed, hey, we're, we're coming back. He already passed with flying colors the, the, the pretest, and we even see that in this story, God saved him, and then God obviously provided a ram for the sacrifice. Jesus gives us a similar test in Luke 14, verse 26. Just One verse, and it simply says this If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That is a difficult verse. And you may say, Well, why would that be there? And you got to look at this verse in the context of all of Scripture, because all, I mean, all of Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us to, that, that we are to, I mean, hate our family. And we are to, uh, I mean, it obviously says the opposite. We are, we are to love them, and we are to obey them. We are to respect them. But if we really look at the word hate in this translation here, hate actually means a lesser form of love. A lesser form of love. We love others best when we love God most. We love others best when we love God the most. What God asked of Abraham but didn't fu- fully but but did not finally require of the sacrifice he was willing to do himself for the love of you and me by Jesus on the cross. And so, is family, is your love for family taking the place of God? Another way lo- your love for family could take the place of God is when you are all consumed by them. If you are so consumed by their actions, by how they're living their life, that it's taking place of your devotion to God, can guess what? They are an idol in your life. You need to give them over to the Lord. No one can raise your children better than God. We, Our oldest son, Landon, he decided a few weeks ago, he's gonna move to Lynchburg, Virginia. He's got a friend that's going to college there and Liberty University, a friend he's met there, and uh, they were counselors together, and, and this particular friend, and he leads Bible studies, and he's someone that could be a good influence to Landon, and, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to pay a little bit of rent, and I'm, a, I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to get a job, and <laughs> we got in the mail last week. Someone, some random person mailed us his, his driver's license and his debit card that he left in Florida <laughs> from another trip. We have no idea who this person is, so we're like, son. Did you drive to Lynchburg without your driver's license? Yeah. Well, how are you going to eat if you don't have your debit card? I'll figure it out. Lord Jesus. (laughs) He's yours. He belongs to you, Lord Jesus. We can't be consumed by that. We just got to laugh it out. Like, Lord, you got him. You got him. He wants to be independent. You go, boy. Yes, bless him. If you're listening online, son, I love you. But know this. If we're so consumed by the actions of our children and the mistakes that they are making, no matter whether they're in your house or outside of your house, if you're so consumed that it's taking over your devotion to God, they're an idol in your life. They have become an idol. Give them over to God. Give them over to the Lord. Trust in God. And as we close, there's one final idol I'm going to talk about briefly. That's the idol of me. Not Frank. Fill in your name. The idol of me. We finally come to this idol that's closer than all the other ones. How do you know when you're having issues with the idol of me? How do you know that you have put yourself in the place of idol and you're loving yourself more than God or even others? There's three symptoms. Number one is arrogance, the symptom of arrogance. You know, when you say things like, I'm I'm always right or my way is best, the God of me doesn't really listen to the wisdom and the advice of others. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you said, I was wrong and you were right? Or I should have listened? Or I like your idea better? When we're so filled with arrogance that we put our foot down, said, no, this is, I like my way best, when you could easily just walk away. So arrogance is a symptom that there's an idol of me. A second one is insecurity. If you're the God of me is consumed with what others think. If you're consumed about what other think, other people think, you have some insecurities, students. If you're concerned about what other people think of you, how many posts? Likes you have, or whatever, then there's some insecurities in your life. You get to, it'll get to the point to where you're terrified to try because you're afraid of failure. So you end up living a life not really doing much of anything or making an impact like you really want to do. Why? Because you're afraid. You're you're so concerned what others think. You have a life of insecurity. You have an idol problem of yourself. So you have arrogance, you have insecurity, and the last, you have defensiveness. Defensiveness. Have you ever found yourself taking the slightest suggestion or even the blandest criticism as a personal attack? When people criticize you and, or want to make a suggestion that's different than yours, do you consider it a personal attack? If that's a case, then you are showing defensiveness. You're trying to defend yourself. Yourself, it's about you, your idea. And so if you have that symptom, then you have the idol of me that you're bowing down to. So watch out for arrogance, insecurity, and defensiveness. Because let me tell you something. You'll never find Jesus if you have yourself on the throne. You'll never find Jesus. When Jesus comes knocking on the door of your heart and there's conviction in your life for some sin in your life and you have arrogance or you have insecurities or defensiveness about it, you're not going to open that door and allow Jesus to come in, because it's about you. The people that God do, I mean, that God does not save, it's not because God chooses; it's because we choose not to open the door. It's our choice. He wants to save everybody. Everybody in this room, everybody watching online, he wants to save you. He wants to, show, he wants to show his love for you. He has incredible plans for you. He wants you to see that, to experience new life in Jesus. He wants to see you in heaven. He wants to start building your mansion. And that starts, that starts when you accept Christ as Savior. So I encourage you, don't let yourself stand in the way because that's the only people that stand in the way. You may say, well, this person did this to me or, or uh, this particular situation happened to me and I understand there are situations like that. Yes, but you cannot put the blame on them. You can't. My parents never took me to church. I'm very sorry about that. But you can't put the blame on them. It's time for you to make that choice. Make that decision. It's It's you. You're the only person that's standing in the way of Jesus coming into your life. Would you open the door and allow him to sit on the throne? Remove yourself. Because one of the things we've learned from this series idols are defeated not by how you remove them, but by how you replace them. They're defeated. By replacing, replace yourself with Jesus. He's here for you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. As we come to a close in this service, just give us another minute as we have a serious opportunity for the Holy Spirit to move in this life. You, maybe you're sitting here today or watching online and you're, you're thinking, you know, oh, Pastor Frank, I have put myself on the throne And I need to get off. And I need Jesus sitting there. I need God as as the one that I'm worshiping. And so if you have never done that, if if you're sitting here or you're watching and you're thinking, all right, I have got to do this right here, right now. We're gonna do this. Are you ready? Simply says a prayer. If you want to do that, simply say a prayer like this right where you're at. Say, dear God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for putting myself first. I'm sorry for sitting on the throne. I believe you sent Jesus to die for me on the cross. I believe in you, Lord Jesus. Please forgive me my sin. Please come into my life. Please sit on the throne of my heart. I make you Lord. You are in control. Thank you for saving me. Jesus' name. Amen. If you are that person, For the first time ever, you have prayed that prayer. I want to know about it. If you're here today, I'd I'd love to meet you in the lobby. And if you're watching online, you can send me an email at pastor at lakepointonline.com. I'd love to know. But whether, whether you have accepted Christ as Savior here or maybe later and you watch it several days later, several weeks later, several months later, know this. Today's your spiritual birthday, and it's a reason to celebrate. I do invite you back next week as we begin a new series called Brace Yourself. Many of you have heard how God has been speaking to the church. God has spoken to, uh, to our church through uh, dreams of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, an elementary age girl in our church. And uh, also through the, the body of Christ, a big C church, basically through the same dream. And we consider that um, confirmation. So we believe that God is speaking to us, we, we need to do everything we can to brace ourselves. That may mean different things to different people, but I feel that God is telling me as pastor, we need to brace ourselves. As a pastor, you need to brace your church spiritually for what is coming. And if you don't think something's coming, then, um, then you got your head in the ground because <laughs> something is coming. I can feel it in my spirit. I can, uh, I, as I talk to other people, a lot of people are feeling the same thing. How Do We Brace Ourselves, that starts next week. You don't want to miss it. We'll see you back next week. Love you guys.